Our great God and Father, we come to you as the God who speaks. You spoke this universe into existence. You spoke in time past through the prophets. You speak to us through the beauty of your creation. And you have spoken to us most profoundly through your son, Jesus. And we pray now that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us in this place and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that your voice would be louder and more powerful and more defining than all of the other voices in our life. And we ask that in hearing your voice, we might be changed. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and would you work among us? And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So we begin our discussion on marriage where the Apostle Paul begins his discussion on marriage in Colossians 3 verse 18 with these words, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I was talking to my wife this last week and she asked what I was going to be preaching on this Sunday and I shared with her this verse that I was going to be talking about submission. And she said, you mean you invited everyone from our Easter services to come to church this week and this is what you're going to talk to them about? It's a story of a uh, pastor who's having a difficult time in his own marriage and he got up to speak on this text and, and he just got up and, and he got really into it and was just going at it, you know, declaring, wives, you know, submit, 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 and just, you know, going after it. And after the service, this lady walked up to him in this big flowery dress and she had a scowl on her face and she looked kind of creepy and terrifying. And she said, Pastor, I thought your sermon today was despicable. Why, if I was married to you, I would put poison in your tea. And the pastor looked at her and he said, Woman, if I was married to you, I'd drink it. <laughs> Savage. But of course, these words, they create a lot, of, a lot of discord for people inside. For some people, it evokes anger. For some people, it even turns them off to Christianity altogether. There, there was a feminist poet whose name was June Jordan, and she grew up in the church. She walked away from Christianity, and she wrote a book of poetry called Kissing God Goodbye. And she describes how her faith was deconstructed, and really at the heart of her own faith implosion was what she said was God's view of women. She said, God is the author of patriarchy and misogyny and sexism, and so why would I want anything to do with him? And it raises a question, you know, here we, we are confronted with Paul's first and his only words, he speaks specifically to wives in this letter, and the one thing he has to say to them is submit. And it raises questions, you know, is Paul in collusion with the misogynists and the sexists? Is he in collaboration with them? And how are we to understand these words? What are we supposed to do with these words? What do they mean to us? And, and what do they mean in their own original context? And what I want to argue today is I want to argue that Paul, with these words, is not demeaning. And he is not speaking disdainfully towards women. In fact, I think what you'll see and what I want to argue is that when you look at these words in their original context, what you discover is that Paul is actually revolutionary and how he thinks about women, how he thinks about marriage. 
And it's here in this text. And so I want us to explore what he says together. So somebody once said that patriarchy, or I'm sorry, we won't go there yet. <laughs> Let me just say this. Listen, to get there, to kind of like argue my point today, number one, what I want to do is I want to look at Paul's words with their own, within their own historical context. Sometimes we forget when we're opening up the Bible, when we're opening up letters like Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, that we are reading someone else's mail, and it was written in a very different historical time and place. And so number one, we want to take some time and do some hard work and understand the historical context in which these words are written. Second, we're going to see how Paul actually uniquely inserts a vision of marriage within this historical context that in many ways is transformative and revolutionary. And then finally, we're going to stand back and say, what does all of this mean to us in the 21st century? So does that sound like a good roadmap? Come on, help me out. Help me, you're in the sanctuary for the first time, even if you don't want to hear this sermon. You're happy. So let's first talk about the historical context in which these words are written. So there, there's some things you need to know about how marriage and family were looked at in the first century that I think are really important. So the, the first thing to note is that first century Greco-Roman world was, number one, it was a patriarchal culture. So uh, Sylvia Walby, who is a sociologist and academic, she describes patriarchy like this. She says, patriarchy is a system of social structures and practices that dominate, oppress, and exploit women. Patriarchy is a system of social structures and practices that dominate, oppress, and exploit women. And the first century Greco-Roman world dominated, it exploited, and it, it oppressed women. And so let me give you some examples. So in the first century, unless you were a priestess in like a fertility cult or something, uh, there was very little status you held in society. Uh, women could not own a business, they could not receive a higher education, they did not have a voice in public life, they could not be engaged in politics, and if you were a woman, basically your education, your economic status, and your voice were all connected to a man. And this was a culture that just exploited and it suppressed women all across the board. And one of the places in which that oppression and that exploitation surfaced was in the context of the Roman household. Now, when you hear household, uh, don't think 21st century nuclear family with the husband and wife and 2.5 children. That wasn't the Roman household. Uh, the Roman household was much larger than that. Uh, usually had grandma and grandpa and sons and daughters and cousins, plus uh, any slaves or servants you had. They were all a part of the broader household. And you could almost think of it less like a close-knit nuclear family and more like a small family business because the household was a place of production. And it was uh, where stuff was happening and where money and status and, and such were being made. Now, although uh, some households were smaller than others, some were more affluent than others, uh, some uh, were, uh, had higher status than others, all Roman households held this in common, that the very pinnacle of the household was the, uh, it was the pater familias. Check that out. There he is. 
the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias was the oldest male in the Roman household, uh, and uh, paterfamilias is Latin for father of the family or the owner of the estate, and he was essentially the head of the household. And within Roman law, the paterfamilias was accorded absolute and total legal authority over the entire household. And, and this went to such lengths that if the paterfamilias wanted to what was called in the first century expose a newborn infant, uh, which was basically to throw a newborn baby who they didn't want out into the tra trash heap, they had authority to do that. They had authority to oppress, exploit, and abuse their female slaves or maybe their young male slaves. This is what the Roman law allowed the paterfamilias to do. And in many ways, the household existed to increase the status and the identity and the fame of the paterfamilias. Now, it was also believed and, and it was uh, understood within Greco-Roman society that the stability of the state actually depended upon the stability of the household. And so it was incredibly important for the Roman household to be marked by order and to be stable because the order and the stability of the household resulted in the order and the stability of the state. In fact, uh, in many ways, uh, the, the, the Roman world imagined the whole Roman Empire to be a, a huge Roman household uh, with order and structure. And who was the paterfamilias over the entire Roman household who held absolute authority over everyone? It was Lord Caesar. He was the ultimate paterfamilias. And so because of the importance of stability and order in the Roman household. By the way, how are you doing right now? You guys doing okay with a little historical background? You're just gonna have to go with me on this because I, I, I'm convinced that unless you understand kind of like the historical surroundings, uh, you're never really gonna understand the revolutionary nature of Paul's vision for home life. So it was common for philosophers, because of the importance of the stability and order of the family, to create household codes that would promote and nurture the stability and order of the household. And so, for example, back in the fourth century, we have one of the first extant manuals, uh, or the first extant examples of uh, household codes, and it was given by Aristotle. Anybody here heard of Aristotle? And it was actually given on a treatise on politics, and he incorporated within that a section on household codes. And he addressed three pairs within his household codes, husbands, wives, fathers, children, and masters and slaves. And that threefold couplet was reproduced in manual after manual, generation after generation, from Aristotle all the way up to the time of Paul. And so what's interesting is when you open up the New Testament, you find Paul inserting his own household codes, and he addresses husband, wives, father, child, master, slaves. But within the Roman culture, the instructions were all basically the same. The social subordinates were called to obey, and the social superiors, the paterfamilias, were called to rule over. And that was how you maintained good order and structure in a society. You know, the paterfamilias ruled with an iron fist. And so it looks something like uh, that. There he is. All right. 
So within this world, again, Paul inserts his own household codes and he addresses the same three couplets. And on the surface, it looks as if Paul is going along with the party line and the status quo. And he's basically giving spiritual justification for how society already functioned. But, but listen, the real question though is, is he? Is Paul simply going along with the party line? Is he simply maintaining the status quo in his teaching about these different, uh, uh, you know, groupings within a family system? And listen, almost everyone who studies his codes alongside the other household codes in the ancient world, and we do have plenty of examples, everyone who, who lays Paul alongside those in the ancient world note that there are significant differences and those difference mean all of the world in terms of how they played out in families. And what almost every scholar who studies this will recognize is that Paul here is not maintaining the status quo. Paul actually is subverting and challenging the status quo, and he's doing that in at least three ways. So Paul, with his code, is subverting, he's challenging the status quo of the paterfamilias and the Roman household in, in at least three ways. And I want to point these three ways out to you. Number one, what Paul does that is so different from his surrounding culture is Paul, number one, he lifts the status of women. He lifts the status of women. Look back in the text. It says this, wives, submit to your husbands. Have you ever had the experience of you're in a room or you're at a party or you are uh, out and about and maybe you're with a VIP, somebody who has some social status, who is not your social equal but is a little bit superior to you and he's the kind of person that when you're with him, everybody wants to talk to them and not you. And then another VIP walks in the room and they walk up to, to you and, and this other guy and they don't even look at you, they, don't need to, they ignore you. The only person they address is the other VIP because that is their social equal. Well, in the first century household codes, the philosophers only addressed their social equals in the codes. They would only address the paterfamilias. They would never address the wives or the children or the slaves because they were social inferiors in the Greco-Roman imagination. But Paul doesn't do that. He starts by addressing not the quote-unquote paterfamilias. He addresses the wives. Why? Well, because for Paul, the wives are his social equals. They are not social inferiors. He is not superior. These are his social equals. In fact, he was so caught up in this reality that he said this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. For Paul, in this new reality that Christ has birthed into the world, in his cross and resurrection, men and women are full and complete equals in Jesus Christ. Now, again, in the 21st century, it is difficult, it is difficult to understand just how explosive these words were in the first century. But what Paul declares about the full equality of men and women in the first century was unparalleled. There is nothing else like it. And so Paul is declaring the full and equal status of women. 
And he does this because Paul believed that when Jesus walked out of the tomb, those old, oppressive, exploitive, man-made categories of inferior and superior were rendered meaningless, and that in Christ, God was creating a new family there, where there was no Jew, Greek, slave-free, male-female categories, but they were all full and equal members of the community of God. Now, where did he get that idea? Well, it's because the Apostle Paul was an apprentice of Jesus, and Jesus advocated and embodied and promoted the full and equal dignity of men and women together. You know, in the Gospels, the longest recorded conversation we have is between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. There's, uh, you know, in, in the ancient world, there were rabbis, like Jesus was a wandering rabbi. And they would call disciples to themselves, but they would only have male disciples. But Jesus welcomed females in his company of disciples. There's a little vignette in uh, one of the Gospels, some of you might know this, where uh, uh, there, there's two sisters that are dear friends of Jesus, along with their brother Lazarus, and they're hosting Jesus over. And at one point in the evening, Martha is in the kitchen busily working away, while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, in the ancient world, to sit at the feet of a rabbi was to take the posture that only a male would take in that culture and time. It was to take the place of a learner, a disciple who would take on the teaching of their master so that they could go out and promote that teaching. And Martha comes out and she's like, Mary, what are you doing? How dare you take that role? And what does Jesus say? He says, Martha, Mary has chosen the better place. And who were the ones who were sitting at the feet of Jesus on the cross when Christ, all of, all of his disciples had forsook him and fled? It was the women. And who were the first people to show up at the tomb on the first Easter morning? It was the women. And who were the first people commissioned to take this good news of the resurrection and announce it to all the male disciples? It was the women. And so you see, in the first century, Jesus was raising the status of women. And that's why you have uh, people like sociologist and historian Rodney Stark, who's done a truckload of academic research on, on the ancient world and all of this stuff. And he says this, modern and ancient historians agree that women were especially responsive to the ancient Christian movement. It is also agreed that women were accorded considerably higher status within Christian circles than in the surrounding pagan societies. And that's why in the first century, women were flocking to this movement. That's why the movement was growing and gained the most traction among slaves and among women because it took those who were on the margins and, and were oppressed and exploited and it was lifting them up to full and equal members in the family of God who shared in the inheritance of the children of God. Alongside any pets or familias. So number one, Paul, in our text, is raising the status of women. But secondly, I want you to see that he is dignifying the practice of submission. Look again back at the text. It has, again, these uncomfortable words. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So let's talk for a minute about this command to submit. So Paul uses this word 23 times in his writings. And it's not the typical word that's used in household codes. Submit doesn't mean to obey. There's another Greek word that means obey. He uses that later when he talks about children, obey your parents. 
And children, you need to obey your parents. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Be sure you're here. So what does it mean to submit? Well, negatively, submission means to not rebel against, to not dismiss or resist or push away or push against the leadership that somebody is trying to provide. Positively, it means to defer to. It means to give deference to. It means a willingness to follow the advice, the leadership, the wisdom, the ideas of others. It means to give deference to the needs of others so that you're willing to serve them. And listen, it, 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 it means to put the needs of others ahead of your own. And listen, to truly submit, it requires the virtue of humility. I was listening uh, a few years back uh, in a class with Dallas Willard up here in um, uh, up at the Catholic Retreat Center up the hill. And I remember him uh, telling a story about being in a class. And there was some student at the end of the class who raised his hand and just started being a little bit combative and started to assert, you know that student that thinks they know more than the professor and everybody in class knows they don't know more than the professor. And they're asserting all of their own opinions and ideas. And after he was finished, Dallas Willard said, okay, well, thank you, class dismissed. And somebody came up to him afterwards and said, what were you, tr what were you doing? And he said this, quote, I'm practicing the discipline of not needing to have the last word. That's a discipline some of us need to practice, not least of which myself. But that requires humility. The humility that says, hey, let's do it your way. Let's prefer you above me. Let's put your needs ahead of my own. Let's, let's, let's go along with your ideas and your opinions and your leadership. That is submission. And here's the thing. Submission is not the unique responsibility of women. Jesus submits. Jesus submits to his parents. Jesus submits to death. You could say that Jesus embodies the virtue of submission when he lays aside his garments and takes on the role of a servant and gets down on his knees, preferring his disciples' clean feet over his own. And he defers to them in a, in a great act of service and he washes their feet. And of course, submission is not just unique to Jesus. It's a virtue that all Christians are called to practice. And that's why a little bit later, or in the, the parallel passage to this one, Paul says this, just before he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he says, submit to one another. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to defer to and to exercise deference and out of deep humility to trust and rely upon and, and sometimes uh, follow the leadership of others. You are called to put the needs of others ahead of yourself to give them deference over your own needs. My goodness, in church life, we need that. Putting the needs of others, deferring them over ourselves. And so the call is to excise the arrogance that says my way or the highway. And so you could put it like this, look, you know, Husbands, in the next verse, are called to love. But of course, the wives are called to love as well, aren't they? All Christians are called to love your neighbor. And, and the, the, the wives are called to submit, but in, in the previous verse, all Christians are called to exercise the virtue of submission. 
And to, that means simply to give willing and voluntary and non-coerced deference to others instead of always fighting against them. And this means, of course, you know, if you are married and you're a wife, it means, look, look, defer to your husband's leadership. You know, he's trying, or at least some of them are. Dear God, give us more, you know. But sometimes out of our own arrogance and our inability to trust another person, we never defer to anyone above ourselves because we are the chief opinion about everything. And so we don't defer to church leaders because we know better than they do. We don't defer to, uh, you know, in, in, in cases regarding the schooling of our children at home, which is what my wife's expertise is in, I defer to her leadership there because she knows a whole lot more about that world than I do. And so what, what Paul is doing in this text is, yes, he's calling the wives to submission, but he is calling all Christians to submission like Jesus practiced this virtue and he's dignifying it thereby, something that was not happening in the ancient world. But I want you to see that Paul is doing one more thing in this text. He's not only lifting the status of women, he's not only dignifying the practice of submission, but thirdly, Paul is redefining what it means to be the head of the household or the paterfamilias. Because look at what he says in the next verse. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, what is unique here versus every other household code in the ancient world is the insertion of one very special word. And it's the word love. It's the word in Greek, agape. It is the unique word that the, Christian, the Christians actually took this word agape, it wasn't in much use in the ancient world, and, and they took this word out and they exalted it because this was the word that they used to describe the unique and breathtaking love of God that is on full display in Jesus Christ, in his own glad and self-giving love for humanity on the cross where he willingly serves, he willingly gives, and, and he willingly puts our needs above himself so that we might be healed and rescued and forgiven. And the word they use to describe this is the word agape. And so Paul says the chief responsibility of the paterfamilias is agape. And I want you to note, though, Paul doesn't hear, he doesn't burn down the whole structure. You know, Paul doesn't deconstruct uh, the household. He doesn't deconstruct order in the home. He does have a code. He does offer some rules. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Some of you might remember Veruca Salt. Daddy, I want a squirrel. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? The alternative to rule is not freedom, but often the tyranny of the most selfish member of the household. Order and structure in the home is incredibly important. And so Paul doesn't burn the whole structure down, nor does he negate the idea of male headship. He does call in the parallel passage in Ephesians for wives to submit to their husbands because he says the husband is the head of the wife. He's not negating male headship. 
And especially in a culture where only men could get educated and had uh, wealth and had power, they ought to use that power and wealth and they need to steward it well with an obligation and a responsibility to the rest of their household. And look, I, I know very few women that wouldn't want a man that is exercising leadership and has initiative and vision and courage and strength. And the strongest of women want this kind of man. You know, and so none of this sitting around in the basement, wandering around aimlessly in your 20s and 30s, 40s, some of you. Just kidding. So he's not negating male headship. He doesn't deconstruct it. Rather, what he does is he redefines it. He's not deconstructing the idea of, of leadership. He's redefining it in a radical way by having the leadership modeled after and shaped after Jesus. And that's why in Ephesians he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You want to know what kind of leadership I'm calling for, Jesus says. It's not the way the leadership is thought of in the world. It is not machismo. It is not toxic masculinity. It's not man who's insecure and domineering and who needs the, everyone in the household to, to come around him and always be obedient to him. It is a leadership that is modeled after, after Jesus. Jesus put it like this. He says, you know the way the Gentiles exercise leadership among them? And those who are great exercise authority over them, it shall not be show among you. But whoever is going to become greatest among you must become your servant. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. In other words, for the Apostle Paul, the model of leadership is not the paterfamilias of the Roman Empire, the machismo, you know, exploitive, oppressive male. It is... It is, it is Christ in his cross-shaped love giving himself for the life of the world. Now finally, let's just talk for a minute about what this might mean for us today. Somebody says, thank you very much. I like the history lesson, the Bible study. Let's go home. Listen, I think what Paul is teaching here is both a challenge to progressives as well as traditionalists when it comes to the whole gender role debate. You know, traditional might, might like, the traditionalists might like parts of this verse, like the part that talks about the husband as the head and men need to lead their homes and their marriage. And, 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 and of course, there's truth in all of that but they don't get to define what leadership looks like. Jesus defines what real leadership looks like. And if what we mean by leadership is nourishing and tenderly caring and treating your wife with honor and dignity and full equality, one who has opinions and ideas and who has gifts that are better than your own and that are worthy of respect and that sometimes you might need to defer to, then that's what it means to exercise leadership. Now, on the progressive side, of course, uh, the progressives might like certain aspects of this teaching, that Paul is transforming the traditional roles, he's subverting toxic masculinity, etc., etc. But they want to ignore the call 
that is clear in verse 18, submit. And I think the reason why they want to ignore that is because all of us want to ignore the call to submit and serve other people. Or am I just the only one? Story told of a man who goes to a doctor with his wife. He's been feeling horrible. He's getting checked out by the doctor. The doctor's face looks grim. He asks husband to leave and he says, I'd like to have just a, a word with your wife. He said, fine. He goes, waits out in the waiting room. And he says, look, ma'am, your husband is in terrible straits. He is on his last leg. It, it looks like he is near death. But I, I think if you can reorient your entire life to serve him and to care for him and to help him in and out of bed and to cook for him and clean for him and wash up after him and bathe him and, 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 and do everything for him, I think we might be able to turn him around and he might be able to live. And she said, okay. And so she walked out of the room and the husband said, so what did the doctor said? And she says, it's terrible. He says that you're going to die. <laughs> Listen, nobody wants to serve. Nobody wants to put the other person first. Or, or, or at least maybe we're willing to do that, but we want the other member in the relationship to go first. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll defer if that loser would step up and would show a little bit more love and deference to me. I, I, would, I, I, would, I would love, I would sacrifice, I would put the needs of the other person ahead of my own if they would start first. None of us wants to go first, do we? Or at least we don't say that, but that's how we feel, right? Or am I the only one? And listen, I think, I think that the situation is even more complicated than that. Because truth be told, if, if, if you, if you Paul, Paul really is not simply giving us two commands, you know, like two little tweets, that's all you get, one for the woman and one for the man, one for the husband, one for the wife. Paul has actually given us an entire body of ethical teaching that reflects a radical renovation of the heart from the inside out. And very often, the reason why, you know, there's never, I've never had it be, be the case where, where, you know, husband and wife are, are sitting in a counseling session with me and one says to the other, if, if, if you just need to tell them to submit, and then I say, well, submit, or you just tell them to love, and I say love, and then they go home and they lived happily ever after. It just doesn't work like that. And the reason is, is that below the surface of our inability to defer and to not seek and insist on our own way and to serve the others, below the surface of that is a world of heart issues about our need to control. Maybe because we were hurt in the past and we don't want to be hurt again. And so the only way to prevent being hurt again is if we control everything in our own life and we don't let anyone else control. Or a deep insecurity. The, this deep wound inside that says, I, I've never measured up. I'm not sufficient. I'm not enough. And so you're always demanding that somebody show you respect or, or give you deference or, you know, because you're, you're incredibly insecure inside. Or maybe you just have deep trust issues, or you've got deep-seated fears, or maybe you're just selfish, but there's all, a whole world underneath the surface. But here is the good news, 
is that under the surface is exactly the place where Jesus came to deal with. That's why in the original, the, the, the parallel text here in Ephesians, before he gets to the place where he says, submit one to another and wives to your husbands and husbands, sacrificially put your wife ahead of yourself and give and serve. Before he goes there, he says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, because you need a renovation of the heart, your heart needs to be connected with the divine presence, the presence of the living God and deep dependence, and deep honesty, and deep vulnerability. And when you open your, 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 your life that's under the hood up to the power and the presence of God and his love, and his conviction, and his grace, you can get on the road of becoming the kind of person who defers, and who serves, and who gives and who lives in a marriage in a way that actually reflects human flourishing and produces that and helps us all become better. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as we enter into this space and prepare to share in the bread and the cup, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would make this a holy moment by your own presence with us and that you would convict, that you would encourage, that you would renew and that you enable us to be your agents of love and grace in this world and how we treat people. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Let's sing together now as we prepare our hearts.